The sea swirled under the gap between the ten twin holes as it raised her on each crest, rolling her precariously. Tumultuous waves attacked her sides. Water cascaded over the bow and onto the bridge, four decks above the weather deck, itself four decks above the sea. Captain Hebden was awed by the forces at work. Even as he stood on the bridge almost 50 feet above water level, he still had to look up to the crest of a wave curling ahead of the ship. He studied the sea's fury. A series of waves about 40 feet high, then a monster towering over the bridge itself, possibly 100 feet high, crashed over them. The pattern was irregular but repeating. They curled up over him, their white crests blocking the sky. They held him fascinated. The troughs were as long as the ship itself. The faces of the tumbling seas were near vertical. On one occasion, two large waves wrestled each other and tumbled ahead of us. They lifted the ship up and rolled her over 40 degrees. The ship shuddered as the cargo of wood stacked in the hold was strewn about like discarded matches. A crew member was tossed into the air as if a carpet had been pulled from under him. The chief officer was lifted out of his chair and hurled through the air. He crashed to the floor, breaking a leg. That's a true uh, first-hand account of someone who was on a massive cargo ship that was being pummeled by these monstrous waves. And so that's a, that's a gripping account, a well-written account of the force of wind-driven water. But listen to a technical, scientific definition of a wave. This is what a wave is. A wave is nothing more than a disturbance that moves from place to place in some medium, carrying energy with it. The common waves of the ocean as well as the greater ones occurring during storms are oscillations of the sea caused by the frictional drag of the wind on its surface. And oceanologists, they can, they can write out algebraic formulas to show us mathematically what makes a wave a wave. Now both of those descriptions of waves are accurate. Both can be very helpful. But only one of them fills you with awe and moves you. One description is rather sterile and clinical. It's, it's observing a wave scientifically from the outside, from the laboratory, that kind of a thing. The other is eyewitness testimony. It's this, it's this re, re, recounting what it's like to experience it from the inside. Well, this morning we're, we're going to have one Sunday, which is not enough. <laughs> one Sunday to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. And often when we talk about the, the Trinity or the triunity of God, the three in oneness of God, we tend to speak rather clinically and, and technically in our language, and understandably so. That there are propositional truths that must be affirmed by us in order to stay within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And, 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 and to keep us from believing or certainly propagating heresies 
uh, even unintentionally so. And this is why you have statements like the Nicene Creed where they're trying to be very clear on what the Scriptures teach on these things. And this is important. So, so we, we could boil down these propositional truths to say, one, first, there's one God. That's foundational. Monotheism. We are monotheists. Second, this one God exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then third foundation, these three divine persons are are co-equal, co-eternal, one in substance and and essence. And so those are the basic foundational truths uh, about our triune God. And again, we find them stated historically in creedal form, and we state this in our doctrinal statement. And in our newcomers class, we walked through this a couple weeks ago, and, and seeing what how important this is to state the reality of our God. You find this in the catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, just for instance. Question 5, are there more gods than one? Answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. Question 6, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so we, 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 we have to come to grips with and understand those basic foundational propositional truths. But listen, this is what I want you to see. The Trinity must not and really cannot be reduced to mere propositional statements. The doctrine of the Trinity is not for us merely some test of orthodoxy. It's much, much more lively than that. It, that for Christians, we don't, we don't really need to be talked into or convinced of Trinitarian theory. What we need to be is, is shown that we're already immersed fully in Trinitarian reality. That's what we're going to see today, and and that's what we really find in Scripture. What you see in Scripture is not is not the the Trinity in a laboratory; it's the Trinity from aboard the cargo ship, and and that's how we find it explained. So, if we were doing a lengthy sermon series on the Trinity and starting that today, or if I was teaching a Sunday school class for several weeks on the Trinity, which you could easily do, we would no doubt spend a lot of time in the theological laboratory with very clinical words explaining this doctrine and, and showing and unpacking it and those, those propositional statements with precision. That's valuable, but this is a sermon, not a series. And so I want us to get into a text and see how God shows Himself in His Word to be triune. And so disclaimer, as you read through Ephesians, this is very obvious, Ephesians 1, 3-14, which is where we're going to be. You did not find the word Trinity in that passage. And in fact, many of you know this, you won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. And, and so you look it up in your concordances back, if you have one in your Bible, and, and you will search in vain for that word because it's not found in the pages of Scripture. And, and critics of Christianity, they're often quick to point this out. This is one of their uh, attacks. And, and so it's better to just acknowledge that. And so you won't find a... And you also, not just will you not find the word, you won't find a single clear passage that gives you know, clear uh, propositional statements like we read earlier on the Trinity. You won't find what we read in the Nicene Creed in the Scripture in that form. What we find, again, is that cargo ship testimony. And, and, and it's more that than that laboratory explanation. So we work back 
from, and it's important to make those clear, precise statements, but we're working back from eyewitness testimony as God has revealed it to us in His Word. So, so Trinity is not a word we should apologize for or be embarrassed by. It's a good biblical word, not in the sense that it's found in, in, in the Bible, but we're saying it's a clear, concise summary of clear biblical teaching. And so it's, it's a word we shouldn't be embarrassed by. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me give you a few other preliminary comments before we get into Ephesians 1 here. First, our understanding of the Trinity is it's not constructed or invented by people, but it's revealed by God. And so don't think that the apostles or some post-apostolic church leaders or, you know, in Nicaea and Constantine and like... Like they, they called some special meeting and say, okay, number one on the agenda today, we need, to, we need to create a doctrine of the Trinity. That was not it at all. Uh, that, that, that what we know about God is on account of His revelation of Himself to us. So these councils that are gathering to work these things out, it's not they're creating or inventing or anything. They're, they're trying to come, to come to a clear understanding of what God has revealed about Himself in Scripture. But, but that's foundational. So... And the way that He's revealed uh, the doctrine of the Trinity to us in Scripture, uh, again, is not just by informing us of facts about it, but ultimately it's by sending His own Son. It's the incarnation of His Son and the, and, the, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's how we know the Trinity most clearly. Second, God has always existed as Trinity. And God would have been Trinity if nothing else ever existed. God has eternally been three in one. Uh, this isn't specifically about the Trinity, but uh, a quote from Susanna Wesley, John Wesley's wife. He, she says, He is being itself, and as such must necessarily be infinitely happy in the glorious perfections of His nature from everlasting to everlasting. And as He did not create, nor so neither did He redeem because He needed us. But He loved us because He loved us. And so the title of the sermon I'm taking this, there's a wonderful book on the Trinity called The Deep Things of God by Fred Sanders. And he has a chapter called The Happy Land of the Trinity. And he's, he comes with that from this quote from Susanna Wesley. But we just say God... God has existed as Trinity forever. God has eternally been within the happy land of the Trinity. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Third and final preliminary comment is that the Trinity is a blessing, not a burden for us. It's not an inconvenience to our you know, tidy theology or, or faith. It is, it is the strong and sure foundation of our theology and our faith. It's not a hindrance to our worship. It's fuel for our worship. It's not a distraction to prayer. Do, can, can I pray to the Holy Spirit? Uh, do I have to pray in a certain way? And Does it have to be in Jesus' name and it doesn't count if I don't say the right words? Not it at all. No, it is the very atmosphere in which we pray. It's not a, it's not a, a apologetics difficulty like it's some difficulty that we've got to defend and we've got sort of embarrassment like I've got to figure out arguments and illustrations to use to make the Trinity sound very very rational. No, it's not that. It's just simply reality. It's, it's, it's been called true truth. It just is. It's not an obstacle to missions. I know you some Flint Tops I'm looking here they've worked in a Muslim 
context. And this is one of the, one of the most common arguments that Muslims use in saying Christians, you Christians are polytheists. You don't believe in one God. You believe in three gods. And, and so this, but it's not an obstacle to missions. It's the power behind missions. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working, calling people to Himself. Well, I, I, I know last, in the bulletin last week and in the BC this week, I had printed the wrong text. Thanks for pointing it out again, Patrick. Um, this is not the first time I've, I've changed when I've done one of these kind of topical messages. But, um, but we are in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Thus Thomas is reading this morning. And, and what was going to initially be kind of a general overview of the Trinity, it's become more of a meditation on, on this one uh, text. And so I'm not going to be attempting a thorough expo- exposition of all of these verses. There is so much here. I did this at Ephesians several years ago, and it, I think it took me three or four sermons to cover the verses that were, we, we read just a moment ago. All I want to do is I want to squeeze this passage and, and just draw out some of the, the, the features of this text in hopes that, that, that you'll get more and more into this text and this text will get more and more into you and and that we'll see and revel in our triune God together and so if the whole Bible were a mountain range Ephesians 1 is one of these peaks that just in my estimation it just towers up, up there maybe above all others I, we, we, my, I was with uh, a couple of my kids and and Madison in Colorado a few weeks ago end of August with seeing my dad and my dad has a uh, place there, and, and he's looking out on the San Juan range of the kind of the western Rocky Mountains there. And there's one peak, Mount Sneffels, weird name, uh, but it's the highest peak, and it stands above all other peaks. And it's just this, this towering mountain right there that we, we, we got to look at the whole time we were there. And I think it's like 14.2 or something like that. It's a big, big peak. And, and, and this is, this is, this is Ephesians 1, or if you just think of the topography of planet Earth, maybe this is Mount Everest. Uh, I realize there's that, I'm not trying to start a debate or anything on which passage is the best, but as far as sentences go in the Bible, this is one of the greatest. And so in this passage, Paul is completely overwhelmed with the blessing that we've received by, by the triune God and from Him. So he's so captured that he, he writes this incredible sentence. Yes, sentence. Singular. I realize in your English versions it's probably three to five sentences in these, covering these verses, but it's one long run-on sentence in the original Greek. Over 200 words in it. It's not something you can fit into a tweet and 140 characters or whatever. So it's a, and it's not just a long sentence, it's a lively sentence. It is, it is full of en- energy. It's just tumbling forward with phrase after phrase and and it's and it's and it's uh twisting and turning and doubling back on itself and 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 i hope you caught the energy of it as as thomas read it uh just a moment ago and so this isn't this isn't but it's not just some random string of words where he's just kind of giving us this disordered list of religious cliches not at all it's ordered it's inspired but there is this wildness to it and this explosiveness in these words, it's intended by God and by Paul to, to stagger us and to stun us a little bit. It's, if you're not stunned by this sentence that we just read on God's blessing of us in Christ through the Holy Spirit, then you're not reading it right or you're not hearing it right. And don't you dare try to blame, Tom, blame Thomas for the way he read it because he, he, he did a fantastic job. And so listen, 
No word from God, we, Scripture tells us, ever returns empty to Him without accomplishing the purpose that He set out for it. And, and this word from God, this sin, single sentence was spoken by God in order to do something particular in us. It's to expand our sense of what salvation is and who the saving God is. So we need, we need to be enlarged in our understanding of those things. And so all of us naturally think, we, we think about things from our own point of view. We start from ourselves and our experience and we work out from there, from, from that center point, that how things look and seem to us. And that really cannot be avoided. That's just natural to us. We, have, we, we, we all start where we are. But, th- but this is risky when it comes to thinking about salvation. And if we're not careful, we can, we can, without even intentionally doing this, we can just kind of tack God or the gifts of God and the blessings of salvation. We can just kind of tack that onto the list of things that we want or are glad for. Instead, we, we must be reoriented. We must be drawn out of ourselves and this long sentence is meant to do that. It's meant to give us this needed divine orientation. It, it, it helps us view our situation from an infinitely higher point of view, from a God's eye view. It centers our thinking upon Him, not us. So how can we, how can we really do that? Is it possible to, 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 to do that? To begin to think from God's perspective? No, not not in and of ourselves, and, and we don't have it in ourselves to do this. And this is exactly why in the context of Ephesians here, Paul stops and prays two times in this letter. A little bit later in chapter 1, he prays that this miracle would take place in our minds. Ephesians 1.17 Paul prays that the, the God of our Father, or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know these things. And so Paul's, Paul knows we're way, we're in way over our heads here. And, and so he stops and asks God for help to grasp the things that are being said. Down in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul stops to pray again that, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so he's using words that he knows are intention here. And, and he's saying that we would know that which surpasses knowledge. This is why he goes on to say just a moment later, God is able to do far more abundantly than we all we ask or think. So we need the miracle of understanding and comprehension to, 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 to take place in us by the power of God if, as we come to this sentence in Ephesians 1. With that said, let me just pray again now as we really get into the text. Father, we pray that You would open our eyes to see wonderful things from this, this text. I thank You for what You've revealed to Yourself, revealed about Yourself here. And I pray that nothing that I say would be a distortion of what You've shown. I pray that it won't, the way that I say it won't be a distraction from what you've clearly revealed about yourself and I pray that as we walk through these verses Father we would just be lost in wonder and love and praise as we just try to get our bearings within our understanding of the blessings that you've given to us and so help us help us to see this passage not kind of not as a mental hurdle that we just 
struggle and it's painful to get our minds around, but help us to see this beautiful invitation to be drawn in to the, the work that you're doing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's three things I want to say about this sentence, which is appropriate since we're talking about Trinity. I think everything's got to be in three. And we're actually three sets of three things. So we're really going Trinitarian today. So we have these three triads that we're going to kind of draw, see, see it come out of this passage. The very last of those three sets of three are, is, is explicitly the Trinity. You find in this passage three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I hope you noticed that as we read. That's where we're going to end up this morning. The middle triad deals with time. Another little set of three in here. You see past, present, and future. As we read through that passage, I think that was probably clear to you. But we're going to start with just in verse 3, this triad of blessing. Look at it again, verse 3. The triad of blessing. I don't have anything on the screen for you today. If you want to make a point here, you just say, the happy land of the Trinity, that's the title of the message. The happy land of the Trinity is the fountainhead of all blessing. The happy land of the Trinity is the fountainhead of all blessing. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So Paul takes this one word, it's one word in English, one word in Greek, different forms, but it's one word, blessed or blessed, and he turns it in, in three different ways. So blessed be God who has blessed us with a blessing. That's the basic sentence. It's the same word all three times, but it, but it runs in different directions. And so we don't, we don't bless God in the same way that God blesses us. Same word, but different meaning depending on which direction it's going. So just first, just think about the order here as you just read this sentence. In the English, you don't need another language. You don't need Greek to, to see this. Who goes first in the cycle of blessing? God. Yes, God. We, we were not blessed before God blessed us. God blessed us. God, God moved us from an unblessed state to a blessed state. You say from a cursed state to a blessed state. Then, after that, we blessed Him in return, calling Him blessed. And so just like Scripture says, we love Him because He first loved us, we bless Him because He first blessed us. That's the sequence here. So, step one... God blesses us. Step two, we bless God responding to His prior work of blessing. Simple enough, okay? So, so were we blessed before God blessed us? No, we were not. But, was God blessed before we blessed Him? Yes, He was. When, when did God start to be blessed? Did He ever move from an unblessed state to a blessed state like we did. No, He did not. He, is, he has always been blessed. He, is, he, is not, he's, he was never not blessed. Sorry, English folks. Um, God did not wait for us to bless Him in order for Him to be blessed. I, I, I realize I'm not trying to be pedantic, but this is so this is important to see, and I'll show that connection in a moment. But God is blessed in Himself eternally. Blessedness, I know it's not a common word we use today. It's a very old, kind of archaic word, even in, in Christian circles. And you read 
you know, a list of uh, the attributes of God. Sometimes this doesn't even show up on that list. But in old theology books and in old preaching, this was a very common word. They would speak of the blessedness of God often. And it's, and it's a good thing for us to think upon this morning. So when we say blessed, we're, we're talking about who God is. This is, an, this is an attribute of God. It's even a title for God. In Mark 14, 61, people ask Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? So they're, they're using blessed as, a, as God's name. 1 Timothy 6.15, Paul calls God the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Elsewhere, Paul says he's bringing the message of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The gospel of the God who is blessed. 1 Timothy 1.11 So blessedness, it's not just an attribute of God, it's really in that category of these, this mega attribute or meta attribute of God. It's this overarching category just of what it means to be God. It's the twin sibling of glory. We're more familiar with glory. But this is very closely related. So glory, when you talk about the glory of God, we're taking all of the divine attributes of God, faithfulness and patience and love and mercy and grace and immutability and, and, and sovereignty and take all of those attributes and combine them with all those omni-attributes, omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, and you, you bundle all of that together and the, total, the totality of all those perfections of God put on display, what do we call that? We call that God's glory. It's this shining forth of, of all of God's... Uh, uh, it's shining forth of God's godness. It's who He is and it's, it's on display. The heavens declare the glory of God. So that's, it's just the, what it means for God to be God. And that's on display. Listen, blessedness is the other side of glory. And so if you bundle up all of God's attributes and you ask the kind of weird question for us, but you ask the question, what is it like for God to be God? The answer, it's blessedness. What glory is to the outward display of God's attributes and His perfections and His godness, blessedness is, is to the inward possession of God's godness. I know this is kind of heavy, deep stuff. Just hang with me for a few more moments. But it's, it's for God to have all of His perfections, to, to know that He has them, and to love it, and to, and to be them, and to, to uh, be fully and eternally conscious of being God. That is to be blessed, to be blessed in this sense. And so, I, I, again, Blessedness, it may sound kind of like, as we're talking about, it sounds kind of like a theological wormhole or something like that. And like, what's, why does this matter? But it is important to set the gospel against this backdrop of God's eternal, self-sufficient, all-sufficient blessedness. This is what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1, right away at the beginning. And, and this, is why, this is why blessed. It means something like happiness or ultimate joy. You've been through the Beatitudes. You've heard, uh, you know, blessed is the man who who, who uh, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That kind of thing. So we talk about that, but it's more than the way we use happiness and joy. It's like the highest category of of those things. It is the it is the real thing to which what we think of happiness and joy are sort of shadows. It's the sun. 
And our perceptions are generally like the moons that just reflect the real thing, the real blessedness of God. So God is happy. God is eternally, the eternally blessed one. And God wasn't waiting on something outside of His own divine life to make His life complete and whole. That's not why we were formed into being. He wasn't lacking anything. No, He eternally has all the perfections in Himself of being Himself, and He knows He has them, and He loves to have them. God is blessed. That's what we mean. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity really helps us here. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this fellowship of the tri within God, they were not incomplete. They were not lacking anything. They weren't a club that was looking for new members to kind of round out the membership. That's not it at all. There was no loneliness or neediness or incompleteness in God and the fellowship of the Godhead. They weren't sitting around wishing, you know, maybe we should have a fourth. Now we could play spades or something like that. You know, if we just had one more. That's not it. It wasn't like they were looking for, when God created us, we need, we need a little more excitement around. It's getting kind of dreary with just the three of us. And we need some, we need some the pitter-patter of little feet running around here to make this place a little livelier. That's not it. Nothing like that. God in three persons, the blessed Trinity, is fully and completely and happy and fulfilled without us. The happy land of the Trinity. God has eternally existed as this. So it's out of His own infinite, limitless blessedness that, and this is where we get back to Ephesians 1, that God chooses to bless us. He blesses us, and then we bless Him back. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan preacher, he said, though God hath an infinite ocean of all blessedness to which we can add nothing, yet He delights to hear the Amen of His saints. That's good. God doesn't need anything, but He's glad when we say amen to what He's done, when He blesses us with, with every spiritual blessing, and we bless Him back. Now, again, I realize it's not one of those words or one of those thoughts that's probably on your radar when you walked in here this morning, and, and it may slip off the radar when you leave, but I, I do want you to just think about this a little more. This is so critical. that The good news is that because God is infinitely happy in Himself, He pursued us and came to us. And and His infinite happiness came to get us. That's the Gospel. So we are now blessed in God. And this blessedness of God, it's the foundation of our salvation. It's the fountain of all other blessings. This is Wyatt, right at the beginning of the sentence here in Ephesians 1. The blessedness of God is the key to the whole sentence. It's, 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 It's so that we can... It opens for us this fountain that pours forth blessing after blessing here. And so we find things like election and adoption and redemption and forgiveness. These all pour pour forth from that. So blessed be the God who has blessed us. And then to round out that little triad, there's this third occurrence. He blessed us with a blessing. That's a funny way of talking, isn't it? Bless us with a blessing. But it's a common way in Ephesians. There are actually several instances of like this. He, in this letter we find that we're graced with grace. We're loved with love. We're, we're empowered with power. We're called with a calling. And here we're blessed with a blessing. We're often verbed with a noun in Ephesians. And so this language is, is simply trying to express that God has done what only God can do. God is the only source of blessedness and He has blessed us with every blessing. 
Okay. You with me? Have I lost you all yet? Okay. Let's move on. We've got to pick up the pace. We've got to finish this sentence. But, I, but I, I do want you to see everything else is against that backdrop. Second triad is the triad of time. The triad of time. The happy land of the Trinity, it has no off-season. It has no off-season. So did you notice this as we read through this passage earlier? Did you notice that little the, 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 the time there? Past, present, and future. What has happened, what is now the case, and what will come to pass. You see all three of those tenses even in our English versions. And so the sentence has this chronological structure to it. The Gospel is a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And God is at work through it all. The triune God is at work from beginning to end. And so it begins way back in the eternal life of the timeless God. And so the past part runs from around verse 4 to verse 6. So look in verse 4. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So before the foundation of the world. That's, I'd say that's pretty far back. <laughs> um, if, if I were to ask you to tell me your story of salvation, most likely you would start, could be months, could be years, could be decades back, but at, at the time that, that you trusted in Christ. And so it may, you may be starting back when you were in high school or when you were a young child even, and, 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 that, and that's where your testimony begins. And that's a good way to share your, your story. I'm not belittling that at all. But there's, there's a moment in your story, you look back and say, this is when I found Jesus or when Jesus found me. And, and, and that's the past event where we look to start the story of our life as a believer. But Ephesians 1, it starts way back farther than, than where our testimonies begin. And it, it doesn't start with us being born again. It starts with God predestining us to the new birth. It says something about you long before there is a you. And so God chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't want you to get sidetracked. I know predestination, election, that's a complicated subject, and, and, and I don't want you to get sidetracked here. The key to this is that it happened in Christ. In Christ. So the, the start of our story goes back into the deep past of the blessing of salvation. God the Father chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That is literally older than dirt. Uh, that's where the story begins. But then in verse 7, the blessing moves into the present. We have this little verb, have. We have. In Him we have. Present possession. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So we've, we've got this. In Christ we have present possession. Redemption. And it's the forgiveness of our trespasses. It's not just something we look back to and, and remember in the scrapbook of our, of our life. No, it's, something, it's not something we just look forward to like, man, that will be great one day. No, it's, it's something we already possess here and now. This is, a, this is presently in our lives. We have forgiveness of sins. We have redemption. And then in verse 11, Paul moves on to this future expectation. 
Verse 13, just look down to verse 13. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so there's this future aspect of salvation. This future aspect is, is, uh, of this blessing is why, blessed as we are now, we don't enjoy all of it now. There is more to come. And so, we're, but, but we're confident that we will one day have all of it because of the character and the power of the One who's made this promise and who has sealed us. If I promise you something, you may or may not get it. Some of you have probably already learned this. Because if... Uh, what are you laughing about, Tim? <laughs> uh, if, if you... If you uh, because it, it's, it's dependent upon my character... Don't make no comments there, please. Or, or my power to provide what it is that I'm promising. And, and so, when God promises something, it also depends upon His character and His power as well. But He is infinite in both. And so our future expectation is not a fuzzy, uh, wishful thinking. It's a confident one. We have this certainty that God will provide what He's promised. And so there's, that's, that's the past, present and future structure of this great sentence. We see what the blessed God has done, is doing, and will do for our salvation. And that brings us to the last and, and I would say greatest triad here. And it's one that mirrors the triad of time in this text. And it's the triad of Trinity. The triad of Trinity. The happy land of the Trinity is a community on mission. The happy land of the Trinity is a community on mission. I'm playing off of our conference theme. And I'll explain more about that in a moment. But did you notice this? Again, as we read this long sentence, it makes its way from the Father who chose us through the beloved Son in whom we have redemption to the promised Spirit in whom we are sealed. And so the Father chose, the Son redeemed, the Spirit sealed. It's, it's the one unified work of the three persons who are eternally the one God. This is what we see unfolding in this passage. Again, from the perspective of being on the cargo ship. It all starts with the Father, the one who loved the world and sent His Son. The Father is the one that Jesus was was always pointing to and wanted us so desperately to come to know. And, all, and, and the Father was the source of all Jesus' teaching. Jesus makes this very clear. He's directing us to the Father. So the Father, Father looms very large throughout the Bible. Certainly in the Gospels as Jesus is making known the Father to us. But I, I just say sometimes He's not large enough in our own thought, in our own worship. Um, but we should constantly remember that the Father is the source and the starting point of all the blessings we have in Christ. I know there's that wrong characterization that the Father is kind of the angry ogre and the Son, you know, his, He was the loving one who appeased the angry God and kind of, you know, God, just cut Him some slack and here, I'll take their place. And That's not the picture at all. The Father loves us and sent His own Son for us. We, listen, I'm not suggesting that we could possibly be too focused on Christ. That's not it. Uh, we, we cannot be too Christ-centered. But as Fred Sanders says in, in his book, The Deep Things of God, we can become too father-forgetful or spirit-ignoring. And so it's not, it's not that we focus less on Jesus. It's just that we don't forget the Father. Don't ignore the Spirit. 
So the, the Father chose us, but of course the blessing of salvation, it, it works its way out through the Son. <coughs> and the Son is all through this text. I mean, the most commonly repeated expression in these verses is in Christ or some form of that. In Christ, in Him, in whom, in the Beloved. Twelve times in these verses. And so it's, it's the glue that holds the whole sentence together. It's, it's, it's in Christ showing the, the necessity and the wonder of union with Jesus Christ. And of course, it reaches its fulfillment. It all reaches fulfillment in the Holy Spirit. And listen, the Holy Spirit's not a thing, not a force. It's, he's a person. He's a somebody. He's distinct from God the Father. He's distinct from God the Son. But He's fully God. And, 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 and He's the Lord and giver of life. We affirm that together in the creed we sang earlier, and so, or read earlier. And so I emphasize that because the, that the Holy Spirit is a person, because at times it seems as if He's acting in impersonal ways. And even in the way Scripture describes the Spirit's work, it's very different from how the Son's work or the Father's work is described. So at times you'll see the Spirit is being poured out, which is, again, it sounds less personal. He's, he flows, He shines. He does things, again, in different ways. And the Bible talks about the Spirit in ways that it doesn't talk about the Father and the Son, but, but he's, a, he's somebody. He is one of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Here's, a, here's another thing about the Spirit. That, that if your understanding of who He is and what He's like is a little less clear than your understanding of Jesus and of the Father, there may be good reason for that. I mean, you just think what God has revealed for us in His Word. We have the four Gospel accounts showing us the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ and His teaching. And what is Jesus doing? He's showing the Father to us. He makes that very clear what His purpose is. And, 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 and so C.S. Lewis said uh, to this, he said, we're, we're, we're going to God the Father by way of Jesus the Son, but the Holy Spirit's role is to move us along in that. And, and so God the Father planned our salvation the, Spirit, the, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit then applies it. Those are some of the words that are used to describe the distinct works uh, within the Godhead. And so what that does is it puts the Spirit a little more in our peripheral vision um, than in central focus. And that's not, that's not wrong, but listen, nothing happens. Nothing happens without the person and work of the Holy Spirit who, move, who must move us and must connect us to these blessings that God has given to us. The Spirit is essential. So these are the things God does. And, and what He does, He does in this threefold way. Why is salvation threefoldly like this? Because that's just who God is. It's who He is. It's, he's eternally triune. So the Gospel has this distinct Trinitarian shape to it. And it always does. In salvation, He's, he's not just giving us a, 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 this kind of random basket full of different blessings and, and little spiritual goodies. No, He's giving us Himself. Let your, let your mind be stretched just a little more here. But, but in all these blessings of salvation described here in Ephesians 1, this is God giving Himself to us. He's, we could say, self-imparting. He gives Himself in all of His gifts. God's plan is not just about giving us stuff, not even good spiritual stuff, 
The good news of the Gospel is that God gives Himself to us. The Father so loved us, what? That He gave us His Son. The Father sent the Son in the fullness of time and He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying what? Abba! Father! It's so, it's so personal. Ephesians 1, this blessing of salvation is the self-giving of God. He gave Himself to be our salvation. He didn't save from a distance. He didn't save by remote control like a drone or something like that or just sent down from heaven. No. He came and He brought it. He brought it by doing it, by being it, by being our salvation. So you see words even in the Old Testament, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Just the Lord caused it, the Lord made it, the Lord uh, sent it. No, He is it. In Ephesians 1, the sentence is God being our salvation, Father, Son, and Spirit. And just think about this. If God gave everything else, all of those blessings of salvation, without giving Himself, it would not be enough. As great as those blessings are, and and if He was not in them, that would not be Christian salvation according to the New Testament. The Gospel would not be good enough if it didn't have God in it. Without God, it just wouldn't be the good news. And it, and it works. It works basically the same among us. Just thinking on a horizontal level. It's talking about giving gifts. It's all about the giver of the gifts. We give ourselves when we give things. When we give or receive gifts, and, you know, birthday gifts or Christmas gifts or anniversary gifts, we we say things. Well, it's a thought that counts. It's a thought that matters. If that st- I know sometimes that's just a cheap excuse, but if that statement has any depth to it, and uh, and it should, it means that it's the fact that we put ourselves and our thoughtfulness into the gift a little bit. So the gift, the gifts themselves may not generally be that great, but but it's the giver that's represented. So if I just when Brooke and I, if we travel somewhere without the kids, and and uh, you know we could you know go go on some get away together, maybe we pick up some little souvenirs or knickknacks to bring back to them or candy or whatever it is and when we, when we come back home to the kids. And they, and they love them, they, they love them, but not because the gifts are generally so great, <laughs> but, but it's because we thought of them a thousand miles away and we put our love for them into the form of a little gift. But they, they would never get come home. I hope they never say something like this. You know, I, I'm thankful for the little magnet and keychain or whatever it is, you know, that you got me. But I don't really want you or need you. And that's not it. The gift is, it points to the giver. In an infinitely greater way, this is, this is what these gifts, they, 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 they're communicating to us. The greatest gift is the giver. That's what, that's what a gift is. The, 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 that's the gift part of a gift. That's what makes it more than a payment or reward or a, a benefit. It's a, it's a gift if it's interpersonal. It's the basis of or the expression of our, our closeness, our closeness and relationship. And so salvation, as we get back and applying that to this, salvation isn't just a state of affairs that God has arranged for us. It's not just that we had it real bad and now we have it really good. 
It's not a collection of kind of spiritual knickknacks that just these random blessings. It's it's God's self impartation to us. It's it's for it's Him becoming our eternal good. And and that's really the punchline of the whole the whole passage. This is why and this is why as you look throughout the Bible, God puts His name on us when He blesses us. The ultimate blessing is God imparting Himself to us. And He does that by giving us His name, His triune name. And so even you get into the, the Great Commission, go therefore into all the nations, make disciples, what does it say, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have this name, it's the placing of the divine name upon His people. He's giving Himself to us and He wants us never to forget that. He's identified Himself with us and He identifies us as His people. We've been taken up and bound to the strong name of the triune God. Well, I want to conclude and by, by drawing a few connections between this glorious truth of the triune God and Ephesians 1 and our upcoming World Missions Conference. So just a, a couple statements. So our conference name is Community on Mission. That's what we're to be as a church. But because that's who God has been for all eternity. and that's what, So God is Himself Community on Mission. So with that said, just a, a couple statements and how this might connect for us and as you anticipate and pray for the, uh, the beginning next Saturday with the ladies' brunch and on through the following Sunday. First thing, our triune God is the power of missions. He's the power of missions. And I alluded to this earlier. But the Trinity is not an obstacle to reaching Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses or atheists with the Gospel. Now, I realize it may seem very difficult in certain conversations with people when there is that immediate gag reflex when when you start talking about Jesus being God or the Son of God that Muslims or others may have. But the triune God is not an obstacle to missions. He is our only hope in missions. There is no, there is no missions without Him. There is no power without Him. He, the Father's plan, the Son's accomplishment, the Spirit's application, God is, is working. Triune God is working. This is the only way we ever we're brought into these blessings of salvation that we've been talking about. That's the only way anybody else will be brought in. It's because the unstoppable God is at work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so don't... don't. I, I'm not saying that you, you, know, you don't need to think through how do you handle that when those questions come up and, and, and you don't just deflect those things. But I'm just saying don't... You need to be careful that in your own heart and mind you don't, you're not embarrassed or you, you don't see the Trinity as a, as a hindrance to mission. Second, our triune God fuels prayer for mission. Fuels prayer for mission. Now this isn't something we've talked a great length about today, but we, we, know, we know that prayer is critical for, for the Gospel's advance in the world. We spent Wednesday night, many of you were here, prayer for the missions conference and for our missionaries. And so we, we know the necessity of that. But how do we know our praying makes any difference? And, and, and do we have to pray in just the right way? And we've got to be, you know, informed enough so that our prayers, you know, really stick. And, and, and if I'm not 
praying always, or if I'm not praying enough, does that mean that nothing's really happening and God's just kind of waiting around, waiting for us to kind of start it up again, start the conversation again? No. The truth and the the reality of the Trinity reveals that there's already always a conversation going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That when we pray, we're, we're simply joining into that eternal conversation. And so this, this, this truth frees us from, from prayer feeling like a burden that we just have to m- make it happen. Fred Sanders in, in, that, in his book, The Deep Things of God, says this, We are invited in prayer to enter the eternal conversation in an appropriate lower, appropriately lower creaturely way, but the heavenly analog of prayer is already going on in the life of God rather than waiting for us to get it started. If you've ever become weary of working up the right response in prayer or worship, you can glimpse the relief of being able to approach prayer and worship with the knowledge that the party already started before you arrived. (laughs) So you say, Father, you're in. I mean, it's already going. You don't have to warm God up to you and get kind of get things going and loosen loosen the, the, the praying and the conversation up. No, the conversation's lively. It's hot. You just jump on in. And so let's pray boldly, courageously, with faith. Pray for the Gospel's advance. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for, pray for the work uh, that the, God is doing on the front lines of, of mission. Third, our triune God creates and sustains our community, this community, on mission. Which is, again, as we're talking about our conference, as we're, as we're brought into union with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we are brought also into fellowship with one another. And so whatever your perceived experience of fellowship is like in this local church or with any group of believers, the objective reality is that you are one in Christ. That's just truth. So as we talk about this year, caring, better caring for, better supporting, better knowing uh, our missionaries abroad, we begin not by trying to create bridges that aren't there already. No, there are bridges that are there. They're created because God has brought us into fellowship with one another. So all we're simply doing is we're, we're going over those bridges that God has already made and cultivating deeper relationships with those people. But God has already done the hard work. And so we're simply... We're simply joining in with what the Lord has already done. Last, our triune God directs the goal of missions. Directs the goal of missions. We've looked at, and I'm going to get back into Ephesians real quick, so I hope you're still there. We've looked at these three sets of threes in the text, but there's one more, and this is one that's very explicit in the text, and it's been repeated three times in this sentence, to the praise of His glory. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. This is a, this is a very important phrase. It connects the past, present, and future together. It connects Father, Son, Spirit together. In each of these little divisions in the text, it's right there. But it's also important because you can misunderstand this huge sentence about, about what's so good about what God has done. And you could take this description of blessing and pat yourself on the back and say, isn't it so nice to be blessed by God? You know, selfie, hashtag blessed. And we just we feel so good about ourselves and and we turn it back on us. But this sentence is all about him. You find like good job. That's not what we walk away with the sentence. We say, Bless God. 
What you have done, it's all, it's all to your praise. It's all to the praise of your glory and the glory of your grace. It's, it's all what you have done. Three times in this sentence, Paul keeps coming back to tag that base. And he, and, he, and he circles back and reminds very specifically, very explicitly what the, the whole purpose of God's blessing us is. It's the praise of His glory. Which means the purpose of the mission. It's not, it's not horizontally just for us. It's, it's vertically for God and His glory. Not because He's lacking anything, but because He's inviting us in and He wants the amen of, his, of those who experience His blessing. So this blessed Trinity, this is the, if you put all of this together, you're not going to be able to write this sentence. Just listen, the, the blessed Trinity has blessed believers with a blessing that stretches from past to present to future in order to establish intimate fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You that we in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We thank You that You were blessed and blessed for eternity. You're not, you weren't waiting on us to, to, to fill out this attribute of Yours of blessedness. But You have. You, you delight in us with giving the resounding Amen and saying, Blessed be the God. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we want to do that even now as we sing of our God in three persons, blessed Trinity, Father. Um, give strength through our voices to, to, to together uh, sing these praises to You, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.